This is exactly right. It's also really helpful to connect with other people and ask them, how am I doing? Does this feel like a problem for you? And it's also important to listen to the people in your lives because more than likely, you're not asking this question in isolation. People have already shared with you that they're concerned. And I would say lean into those people, the people that are telling you that they care about you and telling you that they're worried. Believe them. They can help you. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is The Dangers of an Ordinary Night, Sober Curious and the Impact of Addiction on Marriage and Parenting with our guest, Lynn Reeves Griffin. Lynn is a nationally recognized expert on relationships and family life. Her new novel of domestic suspense, The Dangers of an Ordinary Night, which we will be talking about today, will be published on November 9th, 2021, very soon. Lynn is the author of the acclaimed novels Girl Sent Away, Sea Escape, and Life Without Summer. She's also written the nonfiction guides, Let's Talk About It, Adolescent Mental Health, and Negotiation Generation, Take Back Your Parental Authority Without Punishment. Lynn has taught family studies at the undergraduate and graduate levels and has acted as the visiting scholar of education at Nagi and Polytechnic in Singapore and consulted with schools in China about preventative mental health. She teaches at Writing Grub Street Writers and is a developmental editor for writers of fiction and nonfiction. She lives outside Boston, Massachusetts with her family. Hello, Lynn. Hello, Dr. Dan. Thanks for having me. Oh, gosh. So, um... You know, you sent me all this wonderful stuff to prep for the show, and of course, your manuscript, your book. And in all honesty, I oh, you know, and you were really kind in your email. You said, you know, like I don't expect you know you to get to this, and so I said, you know what, I'm just going to scan the the first chapter. You know, I'm going to prepare. I like to prepare. Okay, so that was it. I was hooked. I was hooked. There was no scanning the, the full chapter. I read the whole book because I absolutely had to. And that's the truth. And so we're going to, I just, I'm excited because I actually just finished it recently. So all the characters are in my head that I want to talk to you about. Um, Great. Bef- okay, before we go there, we want to learn more about you. So tell us a little bit about, about you, where you're from, what life was like growing up for you. Well, you know, I grew up in central Massachusetts, and I was a theater kid. I was a singer and a dancer, and I was in plays, and I loved that part of my life. It was it was truly where I came alive. Uh, but again, when I went to school, ready, getting ready for college, I was told that I had few options. I could be a secretary, I could be a nurse, I could be a teacher. And believe it or not, this was the 70s, and we still were putting women 
in those kinds of positions. Hmm. Uh, so I forego going to my theater school dream and um, instead I went off to nursing school and I became a nurse and then I became a family counselor. Uh, but my passion for storytelling continued. And so I started writing fiction and really found a perfect blend of what I think I'm good at, mm -hmm. which is telling a good story while at the same time thinking about the novel as a social experience, mm. one where we can dig deeper into the really profound issues that face families today. And here we are. I finally got to write my theater novel. You did. And and just as you're talking, a few things you said, um, you know, anyways, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask a question that a lot of people ask because I, 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 I sense pieces of you in different aspects of the novel. And so, um, where, you know, where did this story come from? Well, this story, uh, and I believe this is true for many writers, it comes from a variety of places. So yes, it comes from that, that theater kid who, who really wants to explore the theater once more. Um, it also comes from my private practice where I routinely hear from families about the profound issues that impact their lives. Um, most notably, this is a novel about addiction. Mm -hmm. It's about the impact of the addiction of one person on the family system mm -hmm. and what happens when we are partnered with someone who's struggling and what issues do the children experience when a parent is struggling. And so I put all of those things together in an exploration of what is the answer to these questions? Some of the most profound questions of family life, like, why do I stay? When should I leave? Mm -hmm. How do I talk to my children about addiction? How do I, in a way, prevent my children from having similar struggles? These are all issues that I wanted to examine. And at first, I thought I would write in a nonfiction book uh, about vulnerability of addiction mm -hmm. in children. But it turns out there is no one single answer to that. There, there is no one prescriptive path. Uh, and so conversations like the one you and I are having today and stories that are fictional that allow a reader to get inside those tough questions, that's kind of where I was coming from here, was mm -hmm. that I don't think there's a right answer. I think there are many right answers. Because you also hit, um, you know, in the story is, you know, parents doing their best and, you know, and doing what they can and trying, you know, and especially when it comes to addiction, um, protecting a child or thinking they're protecting a child, you know, acting out of good faith and still any way you slice it, I guess there's a few things. Parents are doing the best they can given their histories and given their life circumstance. And at the same time, there's no getting around the negative impact of addiction on a family. Exactly. And actually, I have to say, it's, it's a, a supreme compliment that it would occur to you after reading it, that parents are doing the best they can, because that's really my message. I've never been a big blame game person. And I know, listening to your show, that you're, you feel exactly the same way that I do, which is that people are really doing their best. But mm -hmm. it's hard. And there are parts of the parenting experience that are feel very much beyond our control. Mm -hmm. um, and having a partner who struggles with addiction is one of those things. I mean, there's no 
perfect way to handle that. It's, Mm -hmm. it's scary. It's overwhelming. It's frustrating. It's devastating. Um, and yet people don't want to leave someone who's struggling. They, that's, that's not our inclination to leave someone who's struggling, even if it's having an impact on our kids. Often, you know, in addiction, we often look at, you know, dependency, codependency. Um, and I'm curious with all of your counseling experience, what have you come, what do you currently think about the idea of codependency? You know, let's define that, um, for our listeners. And then also do all people who stay, are all people who stay in relationships with people who are dealing with addiction codependent? That's a really good question. I think codependency is something that was really, uh, uh, brought into our lexicon probably in the late 70s, early 80s, if I'm not mistaken. And it's important to think about the fact that in a relationship, uh, we we bolster each other up and we also work through our own issues in relationship to other people. And that is primarily a good thing. In other words, we don't live our lives in isolation to figure these things out. We figure our lives out in connection. Again, mostly a good thing. But when it comes to loving someone who struggles profoundly, and in the case of my book, and in the case of what I really wanted to examine was addiction, codependency kind of has a negative connotation. It means that I too have some flaw. I too have some uh, addiction to the relationship, right? And mm-hmm. so I think what I'd like to reframe it as, and and you know, the uh, the manual of disorders in our profession uh, mm-hmm. characterizes addiction as a, a substance use disorder. We're changing that language to be more thoughtful. I think codependency is one of those words we'd like to change too, which is to say that often people stay because the nature of addiction is that people get better and then they don't, and then they get better and then they don't. And I don't know about you, but if I'm in love with someone, if I deeply care for someone and they're getting better, I'm hopeful. Mm-hmm. So I stay because yeah. I think this is the time mm-hmm. only for the cycle to continue only for those reward circuits to get tripped again for some reason. And the person is back actively in the addiction. And so is the partner. Mm -hmm. So it's hard. It's just really hard. You know, in the novel, the character who struggles the most with her partner who's addicted says, I always thought it was going to get better. Mm -hmm. I always believed I had agency here. Right. And then at one point she says, but my little boat of a heart is no match for his sea of white horses. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really what she's saying is that, it's not up to me to fix it. I can't fix it. And realizing that is profoundly difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm. And addiction, um, you know, addiction has many faces. We, people often think about alcoholism or drug addiction. But as the char- one, the character who struggles the most with addiction you know, it's neither. I mean, those, those, those themes are in the, those themes are in the book in other areas, but addiction is powerful because why, like, how can we, how would you say, regardless of what one is addicted to some of the common threads of addictive behaviors that 
are so detrimental to children and to relationships. Well, you're right. The themes of alcohol and prescription drugs do show up in the story, but I decided to make the person who struggled the most struggle with a gambling addiction. And I did that on purpose because I really wanted people not to get lost in the idea that it's only one substance that we should care about, Mm -hmm. that it's also behavior. So the main character who struggles, struggles with a gambling addiction because that's behavior that's addictive, right? And can be as devastating as uh, substances like alcohol and prescription drugs. Uh, so what are the hallmarks of it? What are the, the through lines, depending upon what whatever it is you're addicted to? It's that the brain is set up with a reward circuit where the substance makes a person feel good for a period of time, floods the brain with chemicals that make the person feel good. And then once that chemical or that behavior is stop, stops in some way, um, the craving for that reward comes into play. And the truth is we all engage in that reward, substance or activity, craving loop. Everybody has that. If you ate a lot of Halloween candy, it probably happened to you. If you you got to have your phone in the morning, it's happening to you. If you love a cup of coffee, it's happening to you. The problem is the degree of severity and the and what is lost in the process of that reward circuit craving loop. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for some people, they are more vulnerable than others to that circuit grabbing a hold of them and not letting go. Mm-hmm. And those are the people that will sacrifice relationships, will lose jobs, will uh, will engage in risky behaviors that threaten their physical and emotional well-being. Um, and that's when you know it's more. It's mm-hmm. more than just the way our brains work. And with addiction, there's different levels of awareness. And based on those levels of awareness, there's more, I would say, like intentional or less intentional lying, you know, secrecy. Um, which these characters, you know, deal with, you know, not wanting to mess up, but having messed up and then having to cover up a mess up, which turns into something else. And it's just so often that's what we see with addiction is because you are, in a sense, being controlled by this brain mechanism of needing something and then dealing with the consequences while trying to have real relationships and do work, and they're not compatible. Right, right. The whole lying piece is really tricky, right? Because people use lying as a defense mechanism to protect self-esteem, to to protect self-worth. And I deal with a lot of parents whose children struggle with executive function disorders or what parents might be thinking of as um, ADD or ADHD. And, um, and lying is a factor in some of that behavior between parents and kids, uh, again, partly for a protection of self-esteem. So in other words, if I do something, but it feels out of my control, and then I try to defend myself by saying I didn't do it, it's a way in which I'm trying to cope with how bad that makes me feel. Mm -hmm. The lying is there, and the Mm -hmm. lying is hurtful, and the secrets are rough on families. And at the same time, 
It's an understandable mechanism by which people are trying to protect their sense of self, which is, I can't believe this keeps happening to me. Right. I, right. I'm a good person. I want you to believe in me. I want you to love me despite these faults and failings. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens too in depression. Uh, a lot of times parents uh, will tell me that uh, they'll find that their kids who are depressed or anxious um, will often lie. Uh, to them, mm-hmm. and that they feel that sense of trust being broken is so hard on their relationship. But again, when there's a clinical disorder present, mm-hmm. um, we have to understand that the roots of that behavior are coming from a different place. It's not with the intention right. of I'm going to lie to you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, lots of reasons people end up lying. Um, and so, in thinking about addiction and thinking about our listeners out there, um, with everyone, as you said, having their own experiences of possibly even what we call little addiction, you know, like tea in the morning, coffee in the morning, uh, a drink after work. I mean, like these are, these are little things which don't necessarily have a negative impact on your life. Um, everyone's different. Everyone ha- um, has different levels of awareness of when something is kind of controlling them more than they're controlling it. So this conversation that we're having, Lynn, is an opportunity for all of you listeners just to, 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 to take note. Because if you are listening to the show, you really care about raising healthy kids and you totally believe in our mission is that you being healthy yourself as a parent is like the number one thing to raising healthy kids. So we're not saying this like addiction is a is a is a thing. It one is powerless when one is addicted um to a degree, a large degree and it takes a lot of effort to work with admit an addiction and take steps. And so you know, Lynn, what do you say to like when what is that first step from your experience? Yeah, I think there's uh, maybe two lenses that we can look at it for the purposes of our conversation today. The first lens is how do you examine it in your own life, right? And then how do you think about it as it relates to either your child's present behavior or your fears about where your child might be heading? But in the in the self-reflective category, um, it's really important to know that straight out, Uh, when you're struggling, your brain chemistry is going to be telling you you're not. So let's just get it out there that denial is a huge factor in any addictive cycle. And that's because that reward craving loop, when it wants what it wants, it wants it. Mm -hmm. And so denial will help you to keep feeding the addiction. So it's very important to take stock and to be reflective. Sure. It's also really helpful to connect with other people and ask them, how am I doing? What do you think? Does this feel like a problem for you? Right. And it's also important to listen to the people in your lives because more than likely you're not asking this question in isolation. People have already shared with you that they're concerned. And I would say lean into those people the people that are telling you that they care about you and telling you that they're worried, believe them. They can help you. And that, that takes a ton of courage. Um, it does. And, and I, I think I would add, you know, there's the people who are confronting you directly. Hey, I'm really worried about you. Um, hey, are you okay? Hey, we've noticed that this might be, you know, 
getting a little out of control or whatever the relationship is. But I would say those are brave conversations. And wouldn't yeah. you say that the if we're trying to be open and aware, cornerstone of um, our show here, you're also looking to people saying things more subtly to you first. Because I think that usually happens first. Like, you know, are you sure, you know, are you sure you need another one? You know, haven't you had enough? Remember last time, right? Like the denial does not want to look at that. And there's a That's lot of right. defensiveness that, right, that comes into this. But you're, what you're basically saying is ask people, which again, so courageous to ask, but also listen, right? Try right. to listen to the feedback you're getting. That's right. I would also say that another tip for adults that are considering where am I in this place mm -hmm. of addiction? Mm -hmm. um, another thing, it's not popular in our culture to talk about the words like sacrifice, right? The sacrifices we make for our kids. It's not presently popular to not think about oneself first and foremost. Um, we live in a culture that is very me, me focused or individually focused, right? But I like to say to parents, you know what? This is so darn hard that if you can't do it for yourself, you can do it for your children. Yes. You yeah. can put your kids before you in this moment and recognize that early childhood experience with parents who are addicted affects kids in the long term. We call them ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And if a parent decides that they're going to take a look at this because they care deeply about the trajectory of their children's mental health, I say great. It's fine to do it for the kids. It's great to do it for you. It's yes. wonderful to do it for your partner. Yes. But doing it for your kids is also wonderful. Totally agree. And I think, I mean, I just know personally and through so many clients, it's sometimes the hardest things we have to do. We need the motivation of our kids, the love for our kids, the commitment to our kids to do something that we might not be ready just or able to do just for ourselves. And even if that's your reason, you're still getting healthy. You're still right. becoming more aware. Like it's still everyone benefits. That's right. And, you know, I guess maybe I'm a little bit older than people who are raising little kids now, but I'll say this. Who cares if the reason why you're doing something is for your kids? How wonderful is that? Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, can't we celebrate doing things for our kids when they're coming from a place of, of, of goodwill and good intention? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Why can't we do things for others? When did that become something that felt, you know, less than? Yeah, and that is such a complicated thing in our society when it comes to, as you said, like the self-focus that's, we have, but then the child focus that parents are often pulled towards, right? So there's just this paradox of how do we put this thing together and be, in a sense, selfish. Um, I think of the great books by Anne Rand back in the day of like, selfish is the idea of focusing on oneself to be a healthy person is actually being selfish ish if we think of the word. That's right. And you know, when we think about what we're doing in schools now with social and emotional learning curricula, where we're trying to do preventive mental health through children's social and emotional learning, uh, the core competencies of that work involve self-awareness and other awareness. So it's not a one or the other. Mm -hmm. it's, an, it's an and. It's mm -hmm. yes, you must be self-aware and other aware.
So again, if you're a parent who's struggling with addiction, yes, you've got to be self-aware and you've got to take care of self. And there's no one that wants you to do that more than I do. And capital A-N-D, you can also do it for your kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in our field, there um, have predominantly been a few models of um, treatment. And now there's a there's a third um, concept that we're going to be talking about. So, of course, everyone knows about abstinence. You know, like if you are deemed to have an addiction or now what we call a substance use disorder, sometimes, I mean, often in the, in the back of the day, especially it would be like, hey, um, it's, you, you can't use it all. Abstinence, because like one leads to many. Then in more recent years, and particularly in our work with the adolescent population, harm reduction model. The harm reduction model, right, of course, is let's work on using less to create less harm. Let's go more and more towards health because we know how hard abstinence is for so many. Now, what we're talking about is this new concept, which which you brought to me, sober curious. And it is such a curious and interesting uh, thing that I was experimenting on with myself as well. So tell people about this new movement of sober curious. Sure. So this idea of sober curious is is really kind of going back to what we just talked about a moment ago, which is raising self-awareness and raising other awareness. So where am I personally in my use of substances or my use of behaviors that start that reward craving cycle? Where am I? And it's self-reflective by nature because you're curious about where you are. Um, You're curious about your use, where you're using, when you're having a glass of wine, if you can't go to a party without using, right? Like if you can't go to a party without having a glass of wine, are you socially anxious? Are you not feeling comfortable in that situation? The wine may be sort of the symptom of the the root of an issue, right? Mm -hmm. So being sober curious is to take a broader, bigger view on use and then examining what's right for you. So in some cases, people who have been sober curious will think abstinence is the right idea for them. Mm-hmm. They'll come mm-hmm. to that empowered conclusion. Uh, other people will use substances only under certain circumstances but they have agency. So the whole idea here is that I'm in charge. I know right. myself deeply mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. understand where I am with whether or not these things are interfering in my life and my relationships. It's pretty exciting stuff. It really is uh, because these questions are so, they're really s- simple. Um, and here, here's an example um, of three questions you can ask yourself being in a sober, curious place. One is, why am I choosing to pick up this drink? assuming it's a drink. Uh, what is expected of me to drink? How is this drink going to impact my well-being? And, you know, so again, I played with this this week and I found myself, it, it's just a really open, aware mindset is like, um, okay, I'm having an inclination to have a drink. And then why do I want this drink? What will this drink make, make me feel? Are there any consequences to having this drink? Okay, so then if I have a drink, if I had a drink, literally before, it's not just going and pouring another glass of wine. It's like, huh, how do I feel right now? 
Why do I want another one? Will it make me feel different? Do I need it? You know, like, so just having those, that dialogue was really powerful. Absolutely. And questions like, am I always drinking alone? Or am I only drinking when I have a social expectation because I'm Mm -hmm. uncomfortable with other people and I don't really know how to communicate easily? Like these are all really powerful ways to think about potentially other solutions to those feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's also, I think, a really nice bridge between what adults can be thinking about for themselves and then how parents can be thinking about their children, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you live in a household where people are curious and parents are open about being sober curious. Imagine the impact that that would have on children. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. powerful role modeling. It is. It really is, particularly with the teenagers, right? Who are all experiencing these sorts of, um, having all of these choices and having all of these pressures and, um, yes, how to model out loud this part of being human and and talking about cravings. Um, yes. and how it impacts our brain. Right. So um, the research is showing that male drinking and in rates of addiction and abuse seem to hold pretty steady. And what, what, this, what a phenomenon that we've seen in the past 15 to 20 years is that substance use, abuse, addiction, drinking among women has increased. Um, and many pe- there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and, and one additional reason that's being talked about is like, has this wine mom meme persona taken on a life of its own and become literally part of the culture when it did not exist uh, not that long ago? Well, you know, this is the downside of giving women messages that you can have it all and be it all and everything, you know, is yours for the taking. Uh, Because then that means that the expectation is that you must be everything to everyone and that you must take all that is offered to you. So I can say firsthand that uh, as a as a woman who was told uh, before I applied to college that no theater school for you, mm-hmm. um, you're going to be a nurse, a secretary, or a teacher, to what was told to my daughter, uh, which is you can be absolutely anything and you can go anywhere and you can do anything and have a family. And, you know, well, you know, I think the downside there is that that's an enormous amount of pressure. There mm-hmm. are still only 24 hours in a day. And we still have to monitor and manage our own health. Um, So I think that the fact that we're seeing uh, more drinking in women and that women are either catching up to or bypassing men uh, when it comes to alcohol use, um, it's not a surprise to me. I've experienced it in my own professional life that the demands on women are a double-edged sword. Uh, And frankly, um, though women are told they can have it all and be it all, uh, here comes a pandemic, and then who's responsible for all the at-home schooling? It's mm-hmm. women. And mm-hmm. who's leaving the workforce to take care of their families? It's women. So again, there's enormous pressure on women. And mm-hmm. I, I won't get political today, but mm-hmm. we're looking at a, a, a body politic that is still thwarting women's access to health, right. yeah. to health care, to child care, to family care, to elder care. To getting jobs. I mean, we are not, we're saying women can have it all, but we're not helping them in any way, shape or form to do so. 
Mm-hmm. So there women are left with, how do I cope? How do I manage stress? Exactly. And taking it back to the character in your book who um, was dealing with all of this and trying to keep the family together and then trying to make money and trying to be the good parent. Um, it's a lot. And as we are seeing in culture, also a craving for, gosh, when can I have that sip? Right? right? When can I have that sip just to take the edge off? And, you know, for people, like, I, I don't, we don't want to, again, make everything an issue. So it's like, Lynn, when is, you know, like, what's okay? When is it not okay? Right? When, I mean, when is it okay to have wine? When is it okay? You know, when is it, too, should we be thinking it's too much? Like, there's so, there's a lot of gray in these. Right. There sure is. Well, the character Nell in the book that you're referring to is not someone who drinks a lot, but she definitely thinks about it a lot. And she definitely wants that sip. And at one point she says, the second glass of wine is the best glass of wine because it blurs the edges of the stress I'm under. Right. So she's aware on some level that she's using it for the wrong reasons, that her life needs to be blurred. Right. But the, play, the way in which we find in the story that it's a problem is not because she's having the second glass of wine for perhaps the wrong reasons. That's not the only way we know that it's a problem. But it's a problem because her daughter tells you, after that second glass of wine, you're not here. Mm-hmm. Right? And mm-hmm. so I say to people, your relationships will tell you. Your relationships will tell you because who wants to hear from their children that they're basically checked out and that they're not available, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Now it's affecting the relationship. So I think there's a lot to consider when it comes to looking at the the multiple ways in which we examine when it's a problem. Mm -hmm. And like I said earlier, there's no one, you know, here's a box I check off and therefore I have a problem. Uh, people are so different and people's lives are so different uh, that it, it really is a trickier path to finding the answer. Mm-hmm. And um, as the literature is suggesting, um, the, the, the very effective, you know, the model, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, which everyone knows about, has changed and saved uh, who knows how many hundreds of thousands, if not more lives, um, due to the program. Um, but many feel that it's set up more for men because it was founded for men by men a long time ago, um, I believe in the thirties. And there, there are other options and that women are feeling more comfortable in. And there's more options on the continuum of this, okay, awareness. And should I take a step? And, how big of a step do I need to take? So tell people, you know, what what these options are for taking a positive step if one is aware, curious, and feeling like they need to take action. Yeah, I mean, I can't say enough about therapy. Um, I I believe it's a gift that one gives oneself. And I feel like everybody deserves that gift. Now, clearly I'm biased because I'm a family and school counselor. Uh, But my take on therapy is that it's a safe place for you to examine issues with someone that can guide that process, that you're not alone, that there's someone who has a lot of information 
that can help to ask the right questions in partnership with you. That's the way I like to think about therapy. Mm. Nice. If somebody out there is listening and they say, oh, that's not my therapy. Mine feels punitive and I feel embarrassed and I don't feel, I feel a great deal of shame. Well, then you don't have the right therapist is what right. I would say, because it shouldn't feel like that. It should feel like a conversation between someone that feels you know, safe to you, to be safe in that partnership. Um, so therapy is a great way to say, hey, I'm sober curious and I've heard about this and I want to learn more. Um, or I worry sometimes. Um, but I'm not ready to give it up, right? I mean, it's okay to say I'm worried sometimes about what I'm doing and I'm not ready. It's That's still right. a first wonderful step. Right, right. Um, well, we call, we also talk about the idea of someone being at pre-contemplation or contemplation. And what you're talking about, contemplation, you know, there's a level of awareness with contemplation, right? And that's what we're really talking about is just trying to take honest inventory of who we are, what we're about, how we're living our life. Are we living consistently with um, our, our values, our desires, our goals? And if not, having the courage to talk to someone, to even find out, like you said, even ask someone you love and care about, like, hey, are you noticing this? And then the courage to actually talk to someone in the helping profession to get a um, supportive, neutral um, partner guide. Absolutely. I had a client once tell me something that was pretty profound. And I do use this again and again with other clients. Um, she told me that a friend of hers said to her, if you were willing to take one step toward being healthier, what would the one step be? Hmm. And I thought about how much more manageable it feels when someone said, if there were just one step you could take, what would that step be? Because mm -hmm. that's not a commitment to the other hundred steps in front of you. Right. It's just a commitment to the first one, right? Mm -hmm. And the right. first one could lead to another and on and on and on. Um, so I think that's pretty profound is to think of it that way. And I do think that if somebody says, hey, I'm asking these questions, I'm having this conversation, and I'm absolutely not ready to stop. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I, I would look at that as a huge, a huge breakthrough. Uh, because mm -hmm. you don't have to go from zero to 60 here. You can take your time to get there. Uh, we, everything in life is a journey. And, yes. um, and of course, this would be the same. So one of uh, the protagonists, uh, Tally, is a teenager. And, you know, as we read, common to real life, you know, Tally knows a lot more than her parents think that she does. And Tally wasn't given information, some information that she's pretty bitter and resentful about um, because it was being kept from her. So common, you know, in this dynamic of trying to shield kids and what's appropriate to, you know, you, you'd, you wouldn't tell a child something. But in your experience, you know, at what age should a child be brought into the conversation of addiction when things aren't adding up and things are uncertain and if not even scary? So I probably have a countercultural answer to that, which is right at the beginning. Uh, I really believe that children know and they either know on some unconscious level that something isn't right in their family. And that can be infants, toddlers, preschoolers. 
uh, to kids who are overhearing or they get the gestalt of something in their family or they know that there's something secretive or shameful about behavior that they witness. Um, so I'm actually a proponent of if there's an elephant in the room, introduce it, right? Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. you got to talk to kids from very early stages. Now, mm-hmm. of course, you need to do that in age-appropriate ways. You right. don't sit down a toddler and start giving them a, a diatribe on what addiction is. But you can say, you know, daddy is scared, you know, he's scared that he's, you know, feeling bad today, or he's sorry that he upset you for feeling sick today, or um, let's, you know, let's go give daddy a pillow because he doesn't feel well, right? You can start to talk to kids about what they're seeing. You don't mm-hmm. have to tell them they're not seeing what they're actually seeing, mm-hmm. which is very detrimental because that's where shame comes from. That's where the whole secretive nature of addiction comes from is we're not going to talk about the thing that you very obviously see. Right. 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 Um, right. And I think in the case of the novel, what I really wanted to do with Tally was to, you know, to show that there's an impact whether you think there is or not. Someone mm-hmm. can look high performing and they can look like they have, you know, mm-hmm. everything together. But at the same time, inside, they're devastated because they mm-hmm. see what's happening in their family. Right. And whether you talk to them or not, they know. Mm-hmm. I, you're reminding me of a client of a long time ago. And he was a uh, between, you know, elementary school, teenage age. And he had a very financially successful dad who was an alcoholic. And he would describe his dad getting in his chair after dinner um, and just continuing to drink until he passed out every night. And the father would come in to the sessions and he'd want to be different. He'd say he, you know, he's going to change. But every night he, the same thing would happen. And it was so heartbreaking to see this boy have no power. Oh, he had no dad after five o'clock. Um, and this dad was a kind dad. This was a, was an involved dad. Um, and it's the effects will rip will will ripple with this child now adult for long long to come that's right and that dad was a human being who was mm-hmm. struggling with great pain mm-hmm. and i actually don't see anything wrong with having a child know that mm-hmm. so if the other parent says yes that happens every night and it's very sad and mm-hmm. i'm sure it really hurts you mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. that's just the truth so right. I I am a fan of talking to kids. And I think one of the things that um, happens in the novel between the mother and the daughter is the mother said, but I thought I was doing you a favor, not doing this. Mm -hmm. I I thought, and I thought I had it all together. And Mm -hmm. Tally pointedly says to her, but you didn't. And it was very clear that you didn't. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. did a lot of damage not to talk to me. Right. Um, it also affects our teens and the choices they make, right? Because right. modeled behavior is often yep. behavior that teens think that's the only way to do something, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So right. if you're not going to talk to me and tell me what's obviously in front of me and my family, well, then I might do some things that you're not going to see or like either. But mm-hmm. that's the only way I know to do it because that's what I've been taught. Right. Uh, so again, right. we have a we have a huge obligation to think about not only talking to our kids about these things, but how vulnerable are they? Right. How vulnerable are they? And how vulnerable can we allow ourselves to be 
to be transparent in an age-appropriate way when we are struggling and our kids are seeing a struggle so they don't make up their own stories about what's happening, right? There's something wrong with them. Um, you know, they're the reason for this. Or, you know, it's, it's like if we don't provide narratives to our kids, they provide their own and their own are often more are, are worse than the reality because of imaginations. Absolutely. And another thing I say to parents is if you don't create the narrative and talk about the true story of what's happening in your family, I assure you that other teenagers who equally are floundering, who do not have brain development that is mature, are going to fill the narrative in for your child. Mm -hmm. So do you want other teenagers to define the narrative or do mm -hmm. you want to define the narrative? Right? Right. So if there's Using your client's question, great question. If there is one thing or one step that you would recommend anyone who's listening now and thinking, hmm, or getting a pang in their stomach or their chest of like, huh, I'm not sure, you know, maybe I need to look at this. What would you say? What's that one thing? I think that um, there are so many first steps. One mm -hmm. could be one could be just sitting with this conversation and thinking about whether or not any of this resonates. And if any of the suggestions that you and I have made thus far, like talking to a friend or being open to a partner who has expressed concern and leaning into that loving kindness, uh, those are steps. Getting a therapist is a step. Uh, if if parents or adults that are listening are interested to learn more about Sober Curious, they could read Ruth Warrington's book, Sober Curious. Mm -hmm. If parents are thinking, hmm, I'm not as concerned about myself, but I'm super worried about my kids, they could read Addiction Inoculation by Jessica Leahy. And we had a we did and we did a podcast, so you guys could go there first uh, too. Good. It's amazing. It's Good. amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Jess's yeah. work is fantastic. Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm going to say that conversations like the one you and I are having mm -hmm. are really exciting to me because we are bringing something that is usually considered an undiscussable, and we're bringing it right into the light. Mm -hmm. So if people are you know, really interested in examining this a little bit more, but want to do it with some distance. They don't want to examine their life quite yet, but they wouldn't ex in mind examining somebody else's life. Well, then I invite them to read The Dangers of an Ordinary Night. Yes. And, yes. and I would love for them to, you know, use the book club guide and talk mm -hmm. to their friends about yeah. Nell's use of alcohol to blur the edges mm -hmm. and Zeke's use of gambling to to sort of contend with his feelings of failure, uh, and to look at other people's lives and examine, hey, that could be me, or that could be my friend, or that could be my sister. And your book, um, Being Fiction Suspense, and truly is suspense, everyone, it allows you to look at all of these things from a healthy distance through the characters. And it really does um, make a difference. It's a, it's a totally different um, experience than reading a nonfiction book about any of these topics because it's so it's so in your face and so factual. And um, not only is this a great suspenseful page turning read, and the characters. Um, all take on lives of their own, but you really do 
you really do take on, Lynn, so much of family systems, relationships, achievement, performance, addiction, loss, grief, trauma. It's, I mean, it's all in there. Um, and I want to say more, but I, people have to, people have to check yeah. it out themselves. No um, spoilers, right? No, no spoilers. spoilers. <laughs> um, okay. Parent footprint moment question. Yes. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual or as a parent or an awareness of your parents and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life and those you love. Yeah, this is um, a question that I gave a lot of thought to. And I I think I told you at the opening, I had many of them, Mm -hmm. as I imagine most of your guests have many. Um, Mine is a little bit uh, bittersweet. Uh, I lost my father when I was a teenager. I was 15. It had a profound impact on my family. Uh, My mother became quite depressed, as you would expect someone to. Um, But she didn't get treatment for that depression. And she struggled with it for a number of years before she finally did. And when I had children of my own, I decided that if I was ever struggling, I would do it for my kids. I would get help for my kids because I had wished that my mother had done it for herself, but I also really wished that she had done it for me Mm. because I missed her for a number of years and she did come back to me and those moments were wonderful. Uh, And she was herself again once she got treatment for her depression, Um, but we lost time. And Mm -hmm. I felt that, you know, that was something I didn't want for my children. Um, So in my family, we talk about everything. My kids would probably tell you we probably talk about everything a little too much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think that's okay. If you're going to course correct, you might as well go on the side of very open. Yeah, yeah. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Um, It's those profound moments as um, young, that's young people sometimes have, which becomes the powerful um, guiding, a powerful guiding factor in their own parenting, right? And so on the show, we're always talking about this level of awareness, knowing those, those experiences that we had and how those experiences impacted us and what we want to take from our childhood, our parent, how we were parented and continue that and what we absolutely want to change because of the impacts that those other things have had on our lives. Absolutely. And I would say that even though that experience changed the way I'm a parent, I would say it also changed the way that I am a professional. Mm -hmm. I think it's also changed what my writing is always about. It always has a Mm -hmm. through line Mm -hmm. of uh, hope in healing, right? That that by, by talking about these social issues that affect so many people and that are often very, very private, Uh, we can talk about them. There are Mm -hmm. safe places to do so. And when Mm -hmm. we do, they just take on a completely different perspective. Well, I was imagining, uh, so the character Sin, the mental health professional, was masterful in working with Tally, an adolescent in a difficult situation. And for all of us who have worked with um, adolescents, we know it's very different than working with children and different than working with adults. And Sin... I felt was masterful and I could, uh, and I, now that have, we've spoken and I could see you, I know that there is a lot of your skill in sin. (laughs) And so, um, uh, it inspired me. Oh, thank you so much. Your kind words about the novel mean a great deal to me because I did set out not only to write 
that page turning entertaining story. Um, but I really care about these issues and, um, and the characters, uh, you know, though many of them are flawed, they're wonderful people. They're terrific people. Yes. So Lynn, tell everyone about, uh, where your book's coming out shortly. Um, it will be out when we launch. It'll just be out when we launch. Tell everyone where to find it. Um, as well as all of your other works and activities. Great. Well, I've written this novel under the name Lynn Reeves, which is um, one of my many names. I'm Lynn Reeves Griffin, professionally. So this is under Lynn Reeves. But people can find all of my work at lynngriffin.com. Uh, there'll be my previous family-focused novels, my nonfiction about parenting and education, and then this new one. And you can get it really at any bookstore. And I'm doing a bunch of online events and some events in person. So if anybody's listening and they want to come and meet me in person and talk about these issues, uh, I would love to meet them. Thanks, Lynn. Thank best, you. This best was of great. luck with the launch. And thank you for all the work that you are continuing to do uh, in all the other aspects of your life. Oh, well, thank you yeah. so much. I'm, it was my pleasure to chat with you. I, I feel like a deep dive on these issues is such a gift that you give people. So thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone, that concludes our show for today. Tell others about the show, particularly the people you have in mind. We love having more and more people part of our community, uh, part of sharing our mission to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one person, one parent, and one child at a time. Please do give us five-star reviews if you feel so inclined. It helps spread the word as well. Try to be that person you want your child to become. And as always, ask yourself the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.